You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hello, I am Jenica Schwartzman. I am an actor and I'm a producer and also a writer. I am the XX partner at Little Sister Entertainment, which is a small indie film distribution company and small press publishing, small press publishing house. I'm also the editor of thedrillmag.com and I've been making movies for over a decade. And you might know me from, um, I'm the leading actress in the movie Parker's Anchor. And I have also been on All My Children on a small recurring role and a few other TV shows. Uh, You might know some of my other independent films like Ridge Runners or Gordon Family Tree. And up next, I am flying to Nashville in two weeks to work on a Christmas movie. I will be falling in love with a handsome gentleman in that one. And I've got another movie I'm producing on this summer that's a little bit more under wraps. Jenica Schwartzman, welcome to the Make It Podcast. I thank you for having me. Anytime, anytime. I'm so excited to have you as well. It's someone that is really doing a little bit of everything and someone that has their hands in just about every cookie jar there is in entertainment. So there's so much to dig into. I want to give this audience a deeper sense of who you are. I'm going to read from your actor's bio and it is the internet. So of course you can always stop me and say, Hey, that's wrong or correct anything that is said incorrectly here. Uh, Jenica Schwartzman, Managing Partner at Purpose Pictures Productions, co-founder and XX partner of Little Sister Entertainment, editor of thedrillmag.com, and member of the Producers Guild of America, Screen Actors Guild, and Moms in Film, loves tackling a project from idea to distribution as a multi-hyphenate actress, writer, producer. Jenica led the AMC Theater Theater's release, Parker's Anchor, opposite Chris Marquette, took home the top award from Gina Davis's Bentonville Film Festival. In the same year, she led sex trafficking crime drama Ridge Runners and Gordon Family Tree and the Music Center drama Before the Lights Come Up. On And all of those had award-winning nationwide festival tours and garnered the highest honor from the Dove Foundation. Jenica has been published in the Producers Guild magazine, produced by Legacy Arts Magazine, Paragon Road, Bustle, and she is a guest writer for the acclaimed entertainment industry websites, Miss in the Biz, FilmmakingStuff.com, Artemis Motion Pictures, Hashtag Women Kick Ass Forum, and WomenInHollywood.com. She's been invited to speak on film festival panels and is a workshop teacher for the International Family Film Festival's Road Scholars Intergenerational Filmmaking Camp. Jenica has produced 10, I'll say that again, 10 feature film releases in her first 12 years in Los Angeles. What a resume. What a mouthful. And I want to start here with a quote of yours. 
you once said, some of us are still figuring out what we are going to do when we grow up, and that's okay. The important part is that we keep growing and expose ourselves to as many options as we can. Enjoy the journey. That's real life. What, uh, expound upon that for, for us and, and, and what drove you to, to quote that, say that, what were those feelings? Um, I grew up in a generation where, um, we all learned from media and culture that we would have a career because, uh, like the boomer generation, for example, you would do something for 25, 45 years, get a watch, have a party, retire. And that's just not accurate to how our society works and also just, um, not, not even achievable (laughs) in our current model. Um, I think it's been really hard for people like my mom to have to, uh, change career adjustments, even though she's still using her music degree and being able to serve in different ways and different capacities over the years. Um, those are just different chapters. And I think I wrote that around the time that I was discovering that, I'm going to have a lot of different chapters. Being an actor is part of being a producer, is part of being a writer, and for me, is part of being a consumer, is part of being a parent. Um, Everything about me is fluid, and uh, my emphasis and how I serve and what types of jobs I have, um, my strengths is that I'm a learner, uh, an achiever, of course, but also a strategist. And knowing where you want to go and how you want to do it is fine and good and awesome, honestly, like really fabulous. But most people don't know exactly where they're going to thrive until they get there. And learning and growing and trying and um, moving in directions that you're afraid of and practicing the very important skill of bravery mm-hmm. <laughs> where uh, you are scared and you do it anyway is how I teach my kids what bravery means doing the best thing for the time with the information you have. I just think it's really important to our mental health to not tell ourselves a story that culture told us that is untrue and unproven, that you will move into one direction, know what that is and stay there. I just think that um, is counterintuitive to the way artists work. And I think everybody has a certain amount of artistry in them. And we should be open to what that journey would be. Yeah, I love that. In a lot of ways, I think about the comment on on what society tells you and the whole boomer generation. And I think that is what at the heart of it, that is what this whole GameStop <laughs> Wall Street mm-hmm. bets <laughs> revolution was about. It's about uh, boomer stocks and and people telling you, hey, this is who you're going to be and you can't beat us. So, you know, this is the established sort of thing. And then when you apply that to entertainment, it, it makes even more sense. Um, you're very open about having grown up and as a performer in the church uh, with a, a pastor as a father who was very charismatic and everyone in the town sort of knew who he was and, and therefore knew who you were. Uh, there's a lot of creatives we've interviewed that have come from that background or at least the background where you get to perform early because you're in a in a church environment and so I'm curious uh, to know uh, was there a performance was there a moment in those early days where it clicked for you where you said okay this is what I want to do with the rest of my life and uh, 
also what, what maybe was your favorite church performance or play that you did? I am not so romantic as to having a specific performance that really clicked for me that this is what I would, I want to do. Um, it's something that grew in me. I, I said before that, um, to you personally before that, uh, there are so many skills that you develop as a performer, especially as a young person that you can recognize these unusual skills of, um, the mechanics and the emotional center and the practice of it and, you know, being able to emote and also hear and also find your light and also stand where it should be, but also feel the energy of the room about what is or isn't working and not being so rigid that you can't move. There's just so many different skills that you hone. And when you're young and you're enthusiastic about it and you're not um, putting yourself in a hole about what you can or can't do, there are moments where you can that you can know this feels right. This feels now. Um, this feeling is like great. This adrenaline and cortisol cocktail running through <laughs> my body is revealing of something that will be solidified in me as a, some, a high that I want to continue um, to pursue. And I think that I don't have a specific moment, but I do know that between performances, I felt this crave, this uh, addiction, this, I want to be up there. Or when, it, you know, when you're singing, uh, especially in a church context, but there's a lot of contexts where people can be singing um, without people watching them. But when you're singing and you're just like, oh, I want to do more than just sing. I want to be alone so I can move with this. Or when you're dancing and you're just like, oh, I want to do more with dancing. I don't want anybody to see me so I can do more. Or be allowed to do more in a space where that's celebrated, um, like performance. I remember feeling in between things, not like a jealousy, but more of a, I know what I would do with this. Give me the torch. I can't wait to do something with this. Please set me free on this stage. Um, I think I remember a few of those moments and for a particular performance, um, my mom would be very disappointed in <laughs> my very up and down uh, emotional feelings about this. But in my church, which is not a Pentecostal or extremely, you know, out there, uncomfortable for a new churchgoer church, um, my mom allowed, she was a worship leader and associate pastor. She allowed for a certain amount of interpretive dance. So, you know, an Easter play or any type of play that was happening and there's singing, there's dancing. It's not like a choreography that is strict and rigid. A few of us more uh, charismatic and loose, you know, like a young vulnerable person who's just interested in exploring um, could be a part of an interpretive dance team. And I'm very uncomfortable saying this even now. And I remember singing, um, well, dancing to uh, Via Dolorosa. Mm. It is a song sung in Spanish about um, Jesus's walk mm -hmm. uh, to the cross. And it's very dramatic and emotional. And I remember dancing it and when I was dancing alone um, with Serene, a singer on stage, I felt very connected to the material. It felt transcendent. It felt beautiful and imaginative, and I felt free. And then when it was over, 
the, like I would say to people with church language, I felt like the spirit left, like I felt done. Mm -hmm. And, um, I could tell that there was someone with me when I was doing it for my understanding of it. And I was very young, like 13, 14, um, very young. And I remember walking down the aisle and being done with the song and this big, strong man who is, uh, classic masculinity, um, man, you would, you would cast him in a show as being the guy who can't get along with progressive terms. Um, <laughs> he walked over me over to me on after one of the performances, cause I did it basically every Easter for a few years. And he came up and he gave me a big hug, hug in the very back of the church. And he just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and said, thank you. And I remember standing there like, I don't think I did much. <laughs> so being that vessel was rewarding in a very different way and confusing and upsetting. I told my mom later that I am upset and disgusted that I was put on display in that way because I feel so embarrassed Interesting about what it looks like um, from the outside because I'm taking for granted that in the room energy is different and memories and what it must have looked like or like somebody had a video of it. It just feel like, oh, this is so awkward and horrible. Why is people watching that? You know, like um, screen doesn't translate uh, theater, you know, stage is different. Energy is different. Um, church is different and you could take church anywhere. So I remember a specific time where I felt like being a vessel was more rewarding than the process. And I held on to that joyful memory of how that impacted this person who actually told me because it impacted a lot of people there, but it impacted him in a way that he felt comfortable telling me. And um, even though I was embarrassed about being a part of that, and I told my mom, I will never dance again. <laughs> like I will never do interpretive dance again. I will never do any of these things because it's so embarrassing. Um, but it's not. And now I'm grown. <laughs> and now I'm like, I'm so lucky. I had this incredibly unique experience to be uh, as out there and expressive as my body was willing to be. And I am a better person for the bravery of doing it over and over. And I will do it again for myself in the quiet of my home with nobody home one day. It is a fascinating thing to be a creative, have talent for it, and then try to appreciate and, and watch and understand the audience and their response. Uh, comedians talk about this a lot, about how odd it is that everyone in a room sits down and for the most part stays quiet for an entire hour and listens to one person talk at them. It just can't happen in normal life. There's like a setting that we've all understood and allowed, and we just want to come in there and feel good. Uh, and and this person has made a promise that we're going to laugh and feel good and let some truths out. And I assume that is the way it feels for just about every performer. Uh, I know that's certainly how I've felt in the past as well. So I, I think I think that hits home. Uh, you started a new podcast with your brother, Mark, I did. and it's called XPK, which stands for X pastors, kids, and mm -hmm. kind of stays on the subject. You mentioned church. I listen to all of it. Matter of fact, I have spent my week in the world of Jenica Schwartzman <laughs> and I have, oh. I have consumed everything I think you've done. Uh, 
And <laughs> it's been a great ride this last week. And I listened to these podcasts and I, I'm curious about this because when you hear it, it, it is emotional. And I wonder, is it about catharsis or connection or, or both? Oh, definitely both. My brother and I were unpacking some conversations around um, not just issues in the negative connotation that we still have around having grown up as pastor's kids, but a lot of the similar feelings we have about the world and about our rebellious nature and spirit that we both share and wanting to talk about some things now that it feels safe, like more than a decade past the church closing, it feels safe to be able to say a little bit more about our experience. And then he was sharing his thoughts on things. And I was like, well, that is incredibly different than mine. And we were in the same room at the same time. How could it be so different? And so as we were unpacking it, Mark came up with the idea, this is a podcast for us to unpack it and hear each other's experiences because there's a bunch of other PKs from the nineties who would probably be incredibly, um, impacted by somebody else pulling back the curtain and saying, here's two different experiences about, you know, church camp. Here's two different experiences about people leaving the church. Um, here's a concept that you might not have thought of. And because there isn't a lot of secular entertainment for people who grew up in the church that talks specifically to their experience. Mm -hmm. Because when you're in, you know, you're in two different sides of the store. You're either in the church side of the store or the secular side of the store. And there's not a lot of crossover. And when there is crossover, it's um, contentious or salacious. And we're both adults who go to different churches who are Christians still. And so how can I talk to people who grew up in that context and have feelings about it, but came out on the other side a grown up who probably still needs to unpack a lot of those issues that are plaguing us to this day. And a podcast was just the best forum for that because it reaches a certain type of person, usually a certain age group. We think that they'll find it pretty easily. And we think that the name is catchy enough that it'll get those people. We grew up with like DCLA or like PK, mm -hmm. like P promise keepers. Like we grew up in a time where everything was like three letters or four letters to get you excited and on fire for Jesus. And so <laughs> we have a feeling that when somebody sees PK, they will peak. And if it says XPK, they may giggle. And then I think we will catch the right people to talk to. And we've had a few pastor's kids actually write us and say, already, we're very new into it. And we've had a few people say, wow, I'm immediately unpacking this with my siblings. It's very rewarding and difficult. So thank you. Yeah. And that's what I was wondering. Is the, is the end audience end goal to reach other PKs or is the goal to let the world at large know what it's like to be a PK? I think it's both. My aunt Marietta wrote me and said that it's very interesting for her to hear it because she wants to know what, how Christian culture has impacted a certain generation. And I'm just so happy that that's exactly what I want for people who don't have the exact experience of a PK, but to grasp how Christian culture impacts a young person 
um, who is a PK or not, and also reminisce about some of those interesting thoughts that we tried to push away. And there's a few like other podcasts I'd heard, um, one on purity culture mm-hmm. and uh, a bunch of things that really resonated with me and that meant a lot to me to have somebody else put to words the issues exactly <laughs> that I'm still dealing with as I'm about to raise my kids into that world. I want to be prepared. And I think a lot of other people who grew up in the church would like to know how to be prepared to raise their kids to say, here's one end of the spectrum that I was exposed to in the 90s. Here's another version. And here's where I land today. And I would really love for you to explore those options for yourself because I didn't have that choice. I love it. And the album art on it is uh, the cover art is brilliant as well. So kudos to you and Mark on that. And, you know, everything you do in entertainment seems to be a family affair, uh, whether it be the films that that your brother Mark Hampson has produced and directed or um, films you've produced with your husband, Ryan just the way you introduce your kids openly into the, into the world that you and Ryan live in. It's, it's just a strong element in everything that you do. I want to talk a little bit about the importance of making sure family is involved in, in all of that to you and what the benefit is. And then also conversely, what are the biggest drawbacks to working with so much family? are working so much with family. Um, Well, I'm glad we have the context out there that I'm a pastor's kid because it makes it easier to explain that anything my parents did growing up, I was there. Um, We didn't have childcare. They had moved across the country to plant a church in a small town in Southern California. So um, there wasn't... Uh, there wasn't support there. And I'm the third of three kids. And so that means I'm there. We're at a thrift store. I'm hiding in the back of a thrift store going through the clothes or the toys. If we're at uh, the copy center, the printing place, then I'm sitting on the ground playing with an old Xerox machine. If we're at the bank, I'm at the bank. Like no matter where (laughs) my parents went, I was there. No matter what we did, I was there. Um, There's no, there's no individuals. And even though we had our own inner life, I was always present at rehearsal. I was always present in the resource room. I slept at the church on multiple occasions just because we were there so late and I'm too young. (laughs) Uh, Slept on the chairs in the sanctuary, slept in the resource room, slept in the library, slept in the kitchen. I, I lived with my family in the family business. And so I don't know any other way to create and be an artist without it being a family affair, because I feel like, isn't this something we should do together? I mean, it would be great to have somebody watch the kids, but maybe I want them to know how to do this. Or maybe I don't mind the noise um, right now, but if we're filming, get them out of here because they're loud. Um, But in general, I, I like working with family because we have a common language Um, I think it's unfortunate when it comes to representation and um, equity and inclusion that I don't have the context of uh, my family being any different than myself. And so that seems like always an extra hurdle to find other people to become a part of my family Um, because it's a lot to ask of somebody because I'm not going to just do one project with you. I'm going to pursue that we do continue like continue to work together. Mm -hmm. And I want that, um, but I'm also still not properly funded in anything to ask favors of people I shouldn't be asking favors for. So I do have the struggle is 
I never have enough to offer somebody that I think should be involved, but I think is inappropriate to ask of them to be involved at the level that I require. I think that asking people to work for free is rude. And I do it constantly, but I do it of people that I expect they can say no because of bandwidth, because I'm related to them or I've worked on five movies with them already because they're best friends with my brother or they're best friends with so-and-so. It's really hard to ask somebody else to join and say, I have nothing to offer you except the project. Uh, This project will be out there and it will exist. That used to be enough. Uh, I came here during the writer strike in 2007, and that uh, begat the web series boom, the internet boom of new media, because all of these creatives couldn't go to their traditional outlets and they still wanted to do things. So they broke all the rules and went a different way because that's how it works. (laughs) If you stop the traditional means, we're still going to do it. We're just going to do it on our own terms and we're all going to spread out like um, like cockroaches in the light, like we're just going to run and do our thing, um, in every direction. And so there was just a lot of projects happening in that time. Um, so I didn't take a traditional route into Hollywood. I've always been on the outside and inviting people to go to the outside feels like I'm, uh, like I'm ruining their career. (laughs) (laughs) I think if you want to do something, you should go PA at a major studio at the, you know, lowest level. And within a few years, you'll be somewhere else. I feel like, um, my path is harder and worse than it needs to be. And I love it here. It's just hard to find people to do that. And when I have family, that wants to keep creating together. And we all have our own personalities. My husband, Ryan, has the type of projects he likes to work on and where he thrives. And my brother, Mark, has the projects he likes to work on and how he thrives. And so uh, different personalities beget different projects. And I become, you know, I'm a, I'm a third child. So I become a different person to work on all those projects. But that also means that I'm not being exposed to a lot of different other genres where I kind of want to explore. And I'm starting to do more of my own things where I write it and develop it completely on my own. Um, mm-hmm. But they're not as good. Uh, collaboration is always better. And yeah. I'm working on new collaborators. That's that's an active desire and uh, position of my heart trending towards that. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer in finding sort of your tribe, if that's not too cliche, and, and just having no mercenaries. I think making things, playing games with the same people over and over and over again means you're going to be better at the game. And I always go back to a piece of advice I, I gave a young man. Uh, that wanted to be uh, in editing and he came to me for advice and I always say advice is free consultation should come with a bill. They're different things. But so I gave him the advice. He said, how do I get started? And I said, here's what you do. You go to a 48 hour film festival and you look at the films that need the most work on editing, right? You're going to see a series of films at this 48 Look at the films that that are the worst in in terms of editing. And then you approach that filmmaker and say, hey, uh, whatever you make next, I'd love to be your editor and I'll work for free. And see, it's a controversial thing, like because you can't work for free. But when you're starting, I would advocate, I'd say, hey, get on their team, do a great job for free 
and then be part of their team and be and play that game with them over and over and over again until you all get yourself paid. So it's it's an interesting uh, concept for sure. I know you've written about it um, a lot as well. Speaking speaking of writing, by the way, you have a book called mm-hmm. Movie Baking: The Indie Work at Home Parent Filmmaker. That's quite a title. And it's a little bit of a movement you're trying to create. And I love it. Uh, We've talked about the family and the the parental part of it. So this book uh, talks about the keys to creating a lifestyle that allows filmmaking and parents to coexist in a successful way. uh, Share with the audience what some of those keys are. Uh, well, seeing is, uh, believing, (laughs) um, I think just having this book at all is, uh, kind of the big step for me. I remember in 2011, I was at a film festival in Phoenix and I'm a lead actress in this movie and I'm real fancy and I'm there to like (laughs) smooch and like talk to people and invite them to my screening and be my most like charismatic girly self for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, we were in this big, um, this big ballroom size space. And as I was walking in, I saw this woman standing in the back with her two kids Mm-hmm. And one was a small enough child that it needed to be held. Um, and the other one was more of a run around, make noise age. And um, neither one of them were in a position to sit still or be quiet, but they didn't disturb the panel or the activity I was um, a part of. It wasn't uh, one of the screenings. It was something else. And I was very taken aback by that moment because mm-hmm. I remember thinking, wow, this person in front of these hundreds of people entering this room is standing in the back, like, you know, just like at church, you stand in the back with your crying baby, like, you know, you do your thing. She's standing in the back. She's not, you know, nobody's disturbed by this. Nobody is uh, uncomfortable by this. And this woman is just doing what she wants to do and the kids are right there. And this is before I had kids and really recognized your relationship with your children. Um, and how you literally can't leave them depending on the personalities of the kids and the parent. And watching that, I remember thinking, this changes everything. Just seeing a person on screen that represents your people is Mm -hmm. huge. Just seeing a person in real life that represents your people is huge. Uh, Culture is so delicate and what we allow to be shown is incredibly impactful and just creating a book about my stance that being a work at home parent is the reality of all filmmakers I know and doing it mostly at home even if you do have an office you're developing at home I think the big takeaways are you have to be you and if you're a parent your child is more important than your career. Mm-hmm. Even if you prioritize your career, your, your child's still more important than that. And you're going to bring who you are as a parent into every room that you work as an artist and engineer. And you're going to bring who you are as an artist and an engineer into every room you work as a parent. And those will never really be separated. And that's why the book is called The Indie Work at Home Parent 
filmmaker is because you can't separate those terms when you are one. It, it's, it's one inside the other. It's who you really are. And I wrote this before the pandemic, but my goodness, is it so much more um, <laughs> important and relevant today than For ever, sure. which is I am telling you this is real and normal and you have a group of people. Just seeing it is like the huge biggest step right there. And then the second part is resources to find others is kind of the difference between life and death. If you feel like you're alone in that journey um, because you're actually alone in that journey or because it just feels like it, then you're never going to really be yourself. You're never going to be fully empowered to do your best work and walk into a room knowing that you're welcome there if you have to have your kid with you that day. I've been in tons of meetings where I've held a child who I've breastfed through meetings. I have taken my kids onto studio lots with me before. Um, I've taken them into waiting rooms as an actor and had them sit there. Um, (laughs) I brought my kid once when, um, when he was sick. I brought him to an audition and I set him on the floor with an iPad in the room with me at the audition and gave him a lollipop and said, I couldn't take him anywhere else. You know, like kids say he isn't real sick. They just have like a tiny stuffy nose for like 20 minutes and they're just really whiny. Like he sat there with me and I just put candy in his mouth and I'd be like, (laughs) be quiet for five minutes while I be a real person with these people. And, um, it's never ruined my career. I've never been blacklisted. Um, I'm sure I have been judged and talked about behind my back in the story somebody told their coworker, but all it does is show their character is the problem because this world depends on, not the not the actual earth world because humans don't matter to the earth however um, this society this mm-hmm. this uh, this human species requires procreation to continue and this economy requires procreation to become strong and the world needs people to have humans and if we're not going to prioritize the humans who make the humans in some places, Uh, then those parents won't be welcome there. And then you will have the problem you have with TV and film back in the day where it's a primarily male focused thing because, you know, a lot of women were at home with the kids or when a woman is pregnant and she's no longer welcome in certain rooms because of whatever reasons we could pretend it's insurance, but it's definitely not. It's bias. Um, The the media and the artistry and the output is affected negatively. And if you take parents out of the room, our movies will not be as good. And if you take parenthood out of the studios, those will become very predatory places like they were before. And so parents being there just gives everybody instantly a different feeling about how they work, who they are, and what they do. It's not like we're all on our best behavior. Um, It doesn't mean we stop having sex scenes and curse words. By all means, please do. How do you think babies are made? And parents of all people are more comfortable with a healthy sexual relationship and healthy sexual values on screen instead of predatory ones. Because, you know, parents are very publicly people who have had sex. There you go. It's so true. And there's so much to dig in there uh, to especially. Well, the thing that stuck out to me was this idea of going back to being a male dominated 
industry with, with the women staying at home, taking care of the kids. And it reminds me of one issue you wrote about the Donald Sylvester Oscar speech where he thanked his wife, Penny Shaw Sylvester for giving up her career and staying at home for 34 years to allow him to pursue his career. And she, uh, they both received a lot of backlash for this. I thought it was a, a loving moment. Where do you stand on this? I think that it's the most important thing is that he said it out loud on a stage on his platform. I think that people's personal choices are their own. And, you know, I've changed my mind on it a little bit. Um, I think that if a parent chooses to stay home and this is, you know, straight, gay, any, any gender under the sun, whoever chooses to be the primary caregiver deserves the right to choose first, if that's their choice. And in, I'm in a partnered relationship. I live a, a lifestyle of co-parenting. And if my partner chooses to stay home or if I choose to stay home, it really is a dynamic of the individuals that we can't judge from the outside, but we can hold him to the standard that he held himself to, which is when you accept that Oscar, please, for the sake of every human in that room and every spouse who's at home with the kids, please say that you share this Oscar with the spouse that raised the children that made it possible for you to do the work because you couldn't have done that work unless somebody was giving you the childcare. If somebody wasn't co-parenting in an intergenerational grandparent or, you know, a babysitter, a nanny, like if somebody's not parenting, <laughs> uh, co-parenting, supporting, being the primary caregiver, then people can't rise to the position of Oscar nominated and Oscar winning uh, skills because it takes decades of work to yep. become that excellent in your field. And those decades were chosen for a field and not chosen to be necessarily in the room with the children who are your actual legacy. Right. And so all those things that you said, your child is more important than your career, your child is your legacy. I think there's a portion of society that is out to shame women for being housewives or for taking care of their children as their primary role in a relationship. And I think it could be dangerous. It could be, a, it could be, you could get a result that you did not expect both from how we raise our children and who they become when they grow up and the dynamics of, of parenthood. It's, it's a fascinating topic and we're kind of in the, in the eye of the storm right now, culturally around those things. And that's why it's important to speak out. And that's why I thank you for inviting me to speak, you know, my truth in a public forum like this and being, to be invited at all. My husband is in the other room with my children. That's the only way this is possible. And it happens to be before he goes to work and before my son starts uh, distance learning. So we're in a position where I can do this at eight o'clock Pacific time <laughs> because I've been up since six with the kids. Um, I have to juggle so much, but I do want to state it. I am the primary caregiver at home and I am doing this. 
It is possible to be the primary caregiver and still write the book and still produce the movies and still go on every audition and still book the roles and still leave town and fly. It is possible to be the primary caregiver and be the person who does all the networking and all the support for my husband and my career while he also works a job that helps make sure that we can pay our bills during a pandemic. Yeah, it's so it's so important. I, I'm often curious um, if a critic has ever been in a marriage before <laughs> that was successful, because <laughs> once you're in it, you kind of know what it is. And it, it's really hard to extrapolate it and explain it to people who haven't done it or are on the outside. They get a sense of it. But the amount of compromise and teamwork that's required, especially, you know, for me, I have three kids. It's you get it. it it's significant. It's significant. Um, you talked about, and this is a few moments ago, about breastfeeding on set. What has to change for sets to be parent-friendly? The people in charge. The people who make the decisions have to be educated and exposed to parenthood in a very visceral, raw, over-immersion experience to grasp how to accommodate. And the people in charge do not have to be a certain gender or a certain orientation or a certain, um, they don't have to be anything to grasp the needs because there's so much education that's out there and present. Um, right now, I'm not really uh, able to share much, but I'm working on a project that in some capacity that involves a character who is trans. And it is instantly my job as the person in charge of helming the team to say to all the above the line people, we're contacting the LGBT center right away. We are finding the right classes. We are all taking these classes. We're taking Trans 101, which is what every person who works at the LGBT Center takes as part of their um, part of their training to work there at all. We're all taking these courses. We're all doing this. It doesn't matter if you say yes or no. This is what we have to do because this is how we take care of and keep safe and like allow this artist to be who they are. And we're contacting GLAD. We are taking this script that everybody has approved and we're immediately putting it in front of a representative who can actually speak on behalf of trans representation and media and give us their professional thoughts and opinions. Mm. And we are going to collaborate with that person. We're going to immediately find a mentor for this artist. So I'm jumping through what I consider to be basic producerial duties when we're handling anything that is so important as taking care of a person who lives in a world where they are traditionally oppressed. And I would say that if somebody was making a movie and there are procreating humans involved in the movie, I don't understand why their first thought wouldn't be, oh, how do we make sure that everybody's up to date on the best sensitivity training? And what clauses do we include in our deal memos to make sure that those things are kept? And what types of other, like, why <laughs> are people in charge that don't immediately require a certain amount of themselves to make those choices? Because the resources exist. I write them, other people write them. I learned from others, I learned on myself, but I know why. It's because it's not prioritized and it's not necessary and it hasn't been in the courts long enough. There haven't been enough lawsuits because 
lawsuits in the courts change what people have to do. Mm-hmm. And it changes the conversation about what is, you know, necessary for a positive work environment. There's just so many things that we're still working on as a society and in Hollywood. And the people with the money who've never had to deal with it ha- aren't requiring it. And a lot of people who are procreating, who happen to be women, are really leading the charge on that. And it is an uphill battle. Um, I've written SAG. Uh, a dozen letters, um, the the health plans, a dozen letters about losing my insurance as a pregnant person. And I was never met with a phone call from somebody from the board to talk about how they can do better. I was always met with a letter about how that's not really included in the plans. I've never been met when I spoke to somebody at the SAG office about the discrimination of a pregnant person and how I'm required to jump through certain financial hoops to keep my health insurance right as the health insurance is most important to my health. My health is on the line um, to, you know, giving birth is crossing through the veil of life and death. And the maternal mortality rate is too high for us to pretend that childbirth is easy or safe for everybody equitably. And so for certain groups of people who are procreating to need to jump through certain hoops that are not reasonable and not written with our gender in mind, it was amazing that nobody called me and said, oh, what do I do about this? I've been a part of groups that have worked on legislation and every time it's it's very gendered towards women. And so it's not going to get anywhere. And I think what we're missing is the people who make the decisions need to be people who value the people on their set. And unfortunately, with income inequalities that we have in Hollywood and the people in positions that have the the money, you know, financiers, um, valuing the experience of the worker is not a culture that we foster in America. So those were like the really big macro answers to what you're asking. Oh, it's incredible. And and thank you so much for um, sharing it because I think it's something that we need to hear and understand. Are there any physical things that need to change on the set just from the way a set is built um, the, and constructed? I talk about it in one of my articles that's free online on MizInTheBiz.com talking about um, normalizing breastfeeding and birth choice and uh, different things. There are specific things to put in your contracts and your deal memos. There's times to add them, like in the beginning deal memo before your contracts about uh, requiring certain uh, space and time, uh, a contact person who's your safe person on set. So if it's going to be your first AD, as an example, on a small set, it'd probably be a first AD. Um, you can establish what I like to call a safe word, which is just a code word to say, like, if you're in the middle of a costume change and you can feel the letdown in your chest, instead of allowing breast milk to spill out all over your costume, which could happen in that moment, um, and it's instant, you can say, like, blackfish to the first AD and the first AD will immediately get you out of that room, no matter how they do it. They'll be like, get her out of the rig. She needs to go to, you know, wardrobe immediately. You know, it's their business to protect you. You need to have a contact person who can always keep your privacy private, especially if you're a procreating person who is not um, the embodiment of a very femme female, you know, if you don't have a cis woman uh, persona, then you are definitely not going to have the respect 
of lots of people. You might want to keep all of your breastfeeding uh, private. And that contact person would also be able to tell you about like if sound moves, you do not want your dressing room anywhere near the sound engineer or anywhere right. where your sound because you don't want the sound person to be yelling, what's this pumping noise? Where is this <laughs> pumping noise coming from? And have them scour everywhere just to find you like oh, in your right. locked room with a pump. If, right. you know, if your breastfeeding space, which is legally, you know, required by law, it, you know, if it's locked and you can't get into it, you need to have your contact person that you can ask, I need you to unlock this. You need to have your designated PA to be the person who takes your milk to um, to a refrigerator that's designated just for your breast milk so that other people aren't touching it. So it doesn't have to be like just for your breast milk. I just like, you know, this area is labeled. Um, you, you don't have to share things with people to get what you need on a set, but you do have to create a system in which privacy matters. Uh, people are able to have, um, People are able to have the authority to make decisions and tasks and movements to help protect you. And I've breastfed on a set with my child. I never pumped on a set. Well, I did pump on a set, actually. That's a lie. Um, but it was just one day. <laughs> but um, I didn't take care of all my needs. And that's why I advocate is because I'm an advocate and I still didn't know what I needed until I failed. And that's part of who I am is failing big and failing often uh, contributes to why I think the things that I think. And I've breastfed with my son, um, my daughter, I think on one set, but with my, oh yeah, actually with my daughter during a take in a project, she was having an issue. And so I'm breastfeeding her and the camera is just cutting off right above the top of my chest where I'm, I'm in the scene acting with another person and I'm breastfeeding the baby the whole time uh, because that's what I needed. And for time, it just made more sense. And everybody on that set was exposed to what it looks like for a person to breastfeed and how it wasn't a big deal, how it was necessary, how um, I was happier because we're able to take care of my needs, um, how I'm able to be a stellar and on top of it actress, despite being also a human and a parent, you know, that's a good normalization. Um, it doesn't have to turn out well for it to be positive anyway. Exposure is exposure, exposure is exposure. And um, I've gone to my dressing room to breastfeed my son many times when he was younger on a set. And I think that being upfront with yourself about what you need, um, conversing with your partner, looking up resources, and then talking to people right as you're being like doing the original deal memo, making sure some of those stipulations that you will have parental accommodations will be included in the contract. So it doesn't have to be specific in your deal memo exactly what you need because you don't want to like turn off the possibility and deal memos are supposed to be short. You just want in there that any parental accommodations will be stipulated in the contract and then we'll negotiate those legally later. Please hire me. And then when you're hired, tell them everything you need and say, these are the resources. This is the source that I got this from. This is the place I got it from. So none of it seems like, oh, I made this up on the spot that I need all of these things to accommodate me because uh, that's how it could be seen and will right. be seen. What you want is a source because then, oh, I'm the asshole. Who I mean, I'm the a-hole. I don't know what I'm allowed to say. You're, you can say anything. <laughs> so oh. big boy and big girl and a big person uh, podcast. Great. Um, yep. Well, yeah, it's a working podcast. It's about work. Um, there's just there's just so much more power in being backed up, 
and being advocated for to having sources. Um, and if you cite your sources and everything you need, no one will question them because they don't know as much as you and they can go to the source and find out why. And it really is their job to do that. And I think privacy is the most important thing. If you're able to put in your deal memo that any parental accommodations or, you know, personal accommodations are to be kept completely private, including the use of an NDA when necessary. Those simple words in a deal memo will protect so many people of multiple different identities, as well as parents, as well as people who have been traumatized by certain events or uh, require a certain amount of privacy for what the work entails, you know, the context of the script. And I think that the more privacy that we have and we can afford to our performers, the more free they are and the better performances there are. And also it enriches the lives of the crew and the team members above and below the line that are working around them to see somebody empowered, to see somebody who knows what they need and to see somebody who will deliver under the circumstances. And it is our job to deliver under those circumstances or God bless you, stay home for a few years. That's okay too. I love it. I love it. Thank you for that. Um, Tell us how your new book, Behind the Screens, is different from your former book, uh, Movie Baking. Movie Baking's audience is the burgeoning adult to any age adult who has a lifestyle obligation, who would like to read about practical, helpful idea to distribution thoughts on how to get, um, how to keep your career progressing. That means moving forward, how to continue forward, how to change the culture, a little bit of philosophy um, about working in film and entertainment and tons of just practical, do this, do this, do this in these situations, consider this, these are resources. Um, it's an adult uh, prescriptive book. Behind the Screens, my next release coming out this year, is a children's picture book. Mm. It's not for very young children, uh, but it is uh, rhythmic rhyme. So we talk about, um, in the first page, the general idea of storytelling. So there's a few stanzas about the benefits of, you know, cu cultural storytelling and how it impacts the world. And then we go into a little bit of uh, above the line artist. So we talk about what does a director do? And then we talk about what does a writer do? What does a cinematographer do? What does an editor do? And there's pictures, um, like for instance, for an editor, instead of having like, you know, a picture of Adobe Premiere software, <laughs> that would be the yeah. picture. Instead, they're all doodle drawings. And this is of Tetris, you know, putting things together where they fit and taping things together to make uh, a puzzle. And we talk about tone and then we go into production and we actually have a page on green screen and stunt work, things that kids would actually care about learning about is like, that's how some of the movie magic's happening. We right. talk about movie magic. We also talk about death and we talk about what it's like to have your favorite character die on screen. So you go through everything from the beginning to the end of the process of filmmaking and premieres and film festivals. And it's all, it's all very simple. Um, it's all rhyming and it's all doodle pictures. And my, uh, my company is putting it out and I have a promise to myself that I'm putting out a filmmaking book every year to talk about certain aspects of filmmaking, uh, sometimes a different audience. We're working on a distribution book to talk about the modern, um, the modern views, more philosophy and how to, 
you know, prescriptive book on uh, distribution thoughts and ideas to consider and lots of different types of books. Well, speaking of that, you funded your film Parker's Anchor through Kickstarter. We've had some different people talk about their experience with Kickstarter. What was your experience with them as a method for funding your film? I speak a lot about crowdfunding, so it's going to be a little macro, Um, but I'll I'll talk about my personal experience as well. Um, We've done two large scale projects on Kickstarter, a $50,000 campaign and a $25,000 campaign for separate movies. And we've done an Indiegogo campaign that we were associated with that was about a $10,000 campaign. And I will say that crowdfunding is something you should do for two different purposes. We like Kickstarter because it's an all or nothing deal because you have to hold yourself to the highest standard. We like Indiegogo for a completely different reason. Um, And, you know, Seed and Spark, there's a bunch of other places that have become more prominent since we decided to not crowdfund anymore uh, because there are two places to use it. Uh, Use it once where you can spend a little bit of your social capital That Mm -hmm. means the people that you know, the people that your parents know, and you're young. When you're young or new, you know, you could be 50 and you're a first-time filmmaker. Um, When you're new, you spend uh, an Indiegogo campaign on a short film. So you take what you can get, spend a little bit of social capital, learn and fail very publicly and very big. It's good for your soul, trust me. And you get, you know, a few thousand dollars, $2,000 to $8,000, and you make your film. However... If you are funding a short film, which I consider to be a patronage, not a business model. Short films are not a business model. You should never have an investor. You're never making your money back. That is just Mm -hmm. an an idea. Commercial short films, which are sponsors, sponsored short films, which are commercials, um, those have a purpose. They're, They're a marketing tool for a company. If you're making a short film that has a sponsor or is a commercial and marketing tool for a company, that is instantly viable because it's a marketing tool and you can be using it. You could be monetizing it. There's so many things to do about it, but for general artistry, short films, you want to a write a story. Let's say it's about a dog. You want to B find endorsements. So you're going to go to the local shelter, tell them about the story, pitch it to them because pitching is a part of learning. You pitch it. And if they want to be part of it, you say, can I get an endorsement from your company? that you, you know, can I get like a seal that says that you've read the script, you're interested in supporting, you know, you don't have to financially be involved, just an endorsement. And then you take that endorsement and then you find a nonprofit. So general, you know, um, dog nonprofits about animals and caring about animals. And then you talk to that nonprofit and say, can I direct people to you who want to learn more about you know, this dog in this movie. And they say, sure. So you have an endorsement and you have a 501c3 that you can refer people to who want to be financially supportive, who are piqued in their interest about the film. And then you create a sponsorship request. You ask your friend's dad who has a t-shirt company and say, can you design a t-shirt? Or you ask your friend who's an artist, do you want to design a a picture of this dog to put on this t-shirt? And do you want to do this? So you create a sponsor relationship. And so once you've gone through an endorsement and a nonprofit that you can point people to, to, and then a few sponsors, you know, 
your your own dad's restaurant who's going to put a little bit of food in it, you know aim for 10 sponsors that are really small in kind sponsorship not money but in kind means um, goods services and wares that are usable for either your film set or your release or your crowdfunding campaign and then you do a small crowdfunding campaign you aim small but you give a lot of who you are and that's when you spend all your social capital. You invite a lot of people personally to be a part of something and they will see that you've done all this work. But if they see, if they don't see you've done all this work, then they don't want to be a part of it because what people want is to be a part of something that's already moving. I want to jump on the train that's going somewhere. I don't want to get on a train that you're building. I want to get on a train that has a destination and it came from somewhere and I can trust it. So if you've done all that work, then you spend your social capital and then you make the film and you deliver and you send everybody their goods, their t-shirts or their things from sponsors or their things from other people. And you spent only, you know, $8,000 or $2,000 or $500 on the short film. And that's a portfolio piece. And then you need to, from then on, anytime somebody sends you a crowdfunding link, you give them five to $25 because you pay it forward when you can for, you know, years. And then brilliant. when you're making a feature, a feature is now a business model. So don't you dare crowdfund another short. Right. I'll say that again. Do not crowdfund another short. Do not spend that social capital again. Wait, make everything you can tooth and nail until you are ready for a feature. And if you want to make features for a living, you're allowed to walk down this road. But if you don't work in video marketing, work in video production, it is wonderful. You can afford a house. It's the best way to go. You get to use all your artistry and you get to you know, pay your bills at the end of the day. All good stuff. But if you want to move into that feature world, it's a different beast. It's now a business model. You go through all those things again. You write the story about a, I don't know, a vintage car guy. So mm -hmm. you're going to <laughs> do the same thing again on a big scale. You're going to go get an endorsement from some vintage collector's conference or whatever. You're going to go get a 501c3, a nonprofit that you can point people to who really want to contribute to, I don't know, society and life. Something that doesn't have to be related at all. It doesn't really matter. You just want to make sure people who want to give, you always want them to give. <laughs> Right. If somebody wants to give, they're not going to give you money for their movie uh, as much as they're going to give money to a nonprofit. Always channel people with money whose hearts are open to a place that they can give that makes society better. So just always have that place in mind. So you want an endorsement and then you want that nonprofit to send people to. And then you find sponsors. And what you do is you show them that short film. You tell them about those sponsors and you say you want to do it on a bigger scale. And it's been six years and now you're ready. And then you get restaurants to donate meals. On my first big feature film that was budgeted called Gordon Family Tree, we had 42 sponsors. Every wow. single meal for 14, 15, for 15 days was for free. Each restaurant gave two to three meals and they were all paid in t-shirts and swag and social media shout outs. And occasionally some of them were integrated into the story. Um, we had just as many sponsors on Parker's Anchor. Um, and you can tell that we went back to some of the same sponsors because we had such a good relationship. We had a coffee house give us coffee for our entire shoot of Gordon Family Tree. Right. We had every piece of clothing was borrowed from a local clothing store just for a short time. 
and they became sponsors. Um, we had every prop in the entire movie was, I, I walked into, um, what was it? The Fayetteville Travel Center. And I said, hey, this mug is cute. It's got a cute picture of the state of Arkansas on it. I want this to be the mug in the scene. Can I borrow this mug for one week? Here's my note. Here's who I am. This is my phone number. Can I just borrow this for one week to be here? They said, uh, sure, I guess. Bring it back clean. <laughs> and I said, I'll bring it back clean or I'll buy it. How does that sound? Here's my info. And they said, yes. You know, like a lot of people do not need to be paid. If you ask a favor, they, they want to say yes. People want to be a part of something, a train that's moving. So mm -hmm. you get 42 sponsors. You have all your food that you can at least 50% off. You have all your clothing. You have all of this, all of that. And you raise money after you do the sponsorship and you have different tiers of sponsorship. Like you just get this in here, you get an online shout out or you um, give us this amount of stuff and you actually become an official sponsor. You get to go to the premiere, you get a hat, you get a shirt, you get all these things, or you do an integrative sponsor. You are worked into the story. When they drop the mug, it is a mug from your shop and you'll be able to glimpse the logo as it falls and hits the ground, not because it's placed there in an awkward way, but because it just happens to be there. Um, so you can do integrative sponsorship, um, which is product placement. You can do lots of different types of things. Or when somebody says, where do you work? It's like, oh, I work down at the Gator shop. You know, like that's all they have to say. <laughs> and it's, it's dialogue and it's easy. And then you do your crowdfunding campaign. You show all that you've done and who's involved. And then you do the crowdfunding campaign. And that money is to be spent specifically on humans, mm -hmm. cast and crew, and also the rentals of the equipment because you need everything to look good, but you need your cast and your crew and those people deserve to be paid. Nothing else, you know, on your first feature, if it's, you know, you're trying so hard and you don't have enough like funding, funding, that's a good way to go. And then when you're done with that crowdfunding campaign and you contacted every person who's <laughs> ever worked at the coffee shop that's, uh, that's sponsoring you and right. every person who worked at the TV shop who's sponsoring you and every person who works at that restaurant who's sponsoring you, you know, you have, you know, 500 additional people you can go after and say, Oh, you work at the Gator shop. Do you know that the Gator shop is sponsoring this movie? It's not just, I need your money. It's also awareness campaign and grassroots specific person to person awareness campaigns are the most effective campaigns. So when your movie does come out three years from now, all of those people have heard of your movie, know that your community like involved and they've heard your voice and spoken to you in your person, you're personified to them. And so then you do your crowdfunding campaign <laughs> and you've spent all your social capital that you're ever allowed to spend and you're not allowed to do another crowdfunding campaign without giving to other people for as much money as you received. I love it. I think that's brilliant. I think you're brilliant as well, Jenica. Uh, you've been so, so generous with your ideas and thoughts and, and personal stories. I can't thank you enough. Tell everybody where they can find you on social media and on the internet, or maybe even where they can see some of your work. I'm Jenica Renee on Instagram and Twitter. So that's at J-E-N-N-I-C-A-R-E-N-E-E. -E -E. Uh, it's like Jessica with N's <laughs> um, because that's my middle name because Schwartzman is too long for Instagram and Twitter. And I didn't want to shorten my name Jenica because I'm Jenica. I'm not Jen or Jennifer or anything like that. But um, on Facebook, I'm Jenica Schwartzman official and I am on LinkedIn 
and I am a very responsive person. <laughs> so if you message me, um, I like to tell people that if you watch somebody's content and then you contact them, I just finished watching your movie as the first line. Um, every artist I know and every filmmaker I know will instantly read that message. If it starts with, you know, I'm a brand new actor and I want to know, like, it's harder for me to open and spend that time that second on it. But when people are telling you, I just watched your stuff, you feel a little bit of like, oh, thank you. Oh my goodness. How, oh, how do I thank you enough? <laughs> you know, just having watched it at all really gets you pretty far with a lot of strangers. Um, but in general, I answer almost every message I receive anyway. And, um, my movie Parker's Anchor and, uh, produced on The Man in the Trunk and Ridge Runners and Brick Madness and all of my movies, <laughs> um, either on iTunes or Amazon, uh, Amazon, like prime video. Most of my movies are streaming free on prime video. If you have prime and, uh, we have Gordon family trees on Tubi right now. So people can watch it for free there. Um, my movies are, are wherever you watch movies. Um, I work in distribution. So if you have a movie, send me your movie and we'll talk. I love that. And, uh, we'll end on this, a quote, you say, always be honest. I do not like a liar. I do not like a spin artist. I do not surround myself with the pretense and insecurity of the people who curate too much of themselves. If you lie, even once, I'm done working with you. I cannot trust you. You said that on February 10th of 2020. Why do you think this industry that we both love, the movie industry, why do you think it is so um, right for sharky people? Do you think it's more about uh, something they're hiding or something that they're trying to hide from you? I've spent most of my career walking on scorched earth by a mediocre, sometimes white man who told a lie about what they were going to do and the promises they made to the people. And I have spent so much time sweeping up that ash and that mess that I haven't been able to spread my wings and do the work that I want to do. I've had to clean up um, local people losing money to something they thought would be something and then they'll, they'll never trust me. I am untrustworthy because the filmmakers who have come before me who have promised gold and have not delivered anything. And I refuse to do that so much so that the majority of what I do will never get me into a lot of rooms because I will not ask enough and, and, you know, boost up myself enough unless I have enough numbers to back it up, unless I have enough research to back it up, unless I have enough this. Like I overly worry about it because it's so easy for somebody to come in with confidence and charisma so many actors turn producer and writers. There's so much charisma where you can sell an interesting concept or story to somebody and say all your, the work they're going to do. But they don't do that work. They can't sell out that theater. When I go to that film festival and I look up every sponsor to that film festival and I email all of their managers and I call and I invite their employees and I email them a flyer for the film festival and I ask them to come to my screening and I talk to people on the street and I walk into every restaurant and invite all the people there. When I call the local retirement ha like center and uh, recreation centers and ask them if they'll put up a flyer to my screening, I will book and I will fill that screening. And people don't believe me until I do. 
because somebody else always promised that before me and they didn't do the work. Right. They didn't, they didn't get dirty. They didn't spend the time. They just weren't, they weren't considering that their words have impact. And of course, in February of 2020, I cared a lot about how people's words have impact. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that it's easy to believe somebody wants to do something. Uh, but I've had a casting director say to multiple people, I only worked with her because in our meeting, she handed me a DVD for her last movie. And I don't think I've ever worked with a filmmaker who actually finished what they started. Mm, interesting. And so I was disappointed as an actor and as a producer and as a writer of that movie that that set me apart to just do my job and finish it because that should be the least of my abilities. The least of me should be, I did the thing I said I would do. Right. I think that's brilliant. And uh, again, thank you so much, Jenica, for the time today, this fascinating conversation. I could probably talk to you for another three hours. So I think a round two is definitely in order. And uh, I would wish you luck, but I know you don't need it. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully seeing you in a couple of weeks here in Nashville. I know you're shooting a feature up here, so please don't be a stranger. Definitely. I can't wait to get there and film and see Nashville and, you know, be myself again. <laughs> All right. I love it. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.